No one is able to please the Lord without the Spirit of the Lord. So how can we go about pleasing Him? We need to call upon the Lord that He would pour out His Spirit upon us, much like Elisha the prophet did at the end of his mentor Elijah's ministry. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we see how essential the Spirit is to any genuine ministry. Well, Phil, in today's message, we witness the end of Elijah's ministry, but we're also able to see the beginning of Elisha's. What are some important things for us to notice about this transition of spiritual leadership? It's a marvelous example to me of a mentoring relationship, Mark. And there are a number of important things we see in Elisha. One is just the way that he follows Elijah around, seeks to learn uh, everything he can from his elder brother in ministry. But I think the most important thing is the way that Elisha asks the Lord for the spiritual blessing of a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And as we'll see in coming weeks, that's a prayer that God answered. Well, the fire and whirlwinds create a dramatic setting for Elijah being taken up to heaven. Those same elements in Scripture also describe the coming of the Lord. Should we be seeing a connection between the two? Well, Mark, it's really interesting that you should mention that because I think there is an important connection. You know, the ascension of Elijah on the chariots of fire is one of those examples or events in the Old Testament that prepares us to understand something that happens in the gospel. Theologians would call that a type. It's an analogy or an example of something that later happens in the ministry of Christ. And of course, that is his ascension when he ascended into heaven on clouds of glory. And so already here in the ministry of Elijah, we're being instructed in the things of Christ. As always, thank you, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 2 and listen to God's Word for us today. This morning our studies in the life of Elijah bring us to his ascension to heaven with chariots of fire. And somehow, given what we know of Elijah, it seems appropriate for him to go up the way God came down at Mount Carmel in a great blaze of glory. This passage, with all of its wind and fire, has always brought great joy to the people of God. The great Welsh preacher and evangelist Christmas Evans lay on his deathbed. These were the verses which came to his mind and perhaps also one wonders to his sight. For his last triumphant words were, drive on. The chariots of God are 20,000. Now, Elijah himself never lay on a deathbed. And as we turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, his days in ministry are numbered. Everybody knows it. We know it because the scripture says, verse 1, the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. The seminary students know it also. At both Bethel and Jericho, they come out to Elisha and ask, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Well, sure, Elijah knows it also, but he has more tact than to come right out and say it. Verse 3 and verse 5, Yes, I know, but do not speak of it. Even Elijah knows it. 
Three times he tries to take his leave of Elisha. Elijah said to Elisha, verse 2, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And then verse 6, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho. Elijah is visiting the branch campuses of his seminary. On his farewell tour, he does everything he can to shake Elisha loose. And yet the young prophet holds on with dogged determination. Three times Elijah asks him to stay behind, and three times Elisha refuses. As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. Elisha is like the little boy who follows his older brother all around the house. He will stay with Elijah as long as he lives on this earth. Now we know that Elisha had been following Elijah like this for quite some time, ever since he was called to the ministry back in 1 Kings chapter 19. On that occasion when Elijah went up to Elisha and Through his cloak around him, Elisha set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. And he took such good care of Elijah that eventually he became known as the prophet who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, 2 Kings chapter 3. And so it was that Elijah and Elisha were always together. And that is what we see in 2 Kings chapter 2, they went on to Jericho in verse 4. The two of them walked on, verse 6, and then verse 8, the two of them crossed over. You always saw the two of them together. The Bible does not tell us what ministry lessons this older prophet shared with his son in the faith, but it is clear that they had a mentoring, discipling relationship. For if Elisha was to carry the torch of biblical faith in Israel, Elijah had to light that torch because he was the one who was God's firekeeper. This is always God's plan for the building of the church. One generation kindles the faith of the next. So if you want to be involved with building the kingdom of God, you should be discipling someone or perhaps being discipled, or perhaps even both. Now, three things happen in this chapter to reward Elisha for his discipleship. A bold request is honored, verses 9 and 10. A blazing departure is witnessed, verses 11 and 12. And finally, a big question is answered, verses 13 and 14. First, at Elijah's invitation, Elisha makes a bold request. Now, some scholars have wondered why it was that Elijah was so eager to get rid of his young disciple. Why does he keep telling Elisha to leave him alone? Most likely, the answer is that he was putting Elisha to the test. Elisha had to prove that he was worthy to receive the gift. He had to prove it by his humility, by the way that he cared for Elijah's needs. And then he had to prove it by his loyalty, 
by the way, he always stayed by Elijah's side. And Elisha did all of that. So it was that when they had crossed the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Elijah will give his loyal disciple whatever he asks. I used to think that Elisha was being greedy when he made his bold request. You can see what he says at the end of verse 9. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Well, that's a little much to ask, don't you think? I mean, who does Elisha think he is? What right does he have to become twice the prophet Elijah has been? After all, he hasn't even performed any miracles yet. Now, some have argued that Elisha really did turn out to be twice the prophet Elijah was. His ministry lasted nearly twice as long, and in the biblical record, he did perform nearly twice as many miracles. But that is not what Elisha was asking for. No, he asked to be treated like Elijah's firstborn son. According to Old Testament law, the oldest son had a right to a double portion of his father's property. When a man died, his legacy was divided into equal shares, one for each of his heirs, but two shares for the firstborn son. Now, rather obviously, he could not inherit twice as much as his father owned, but he did receive a double portion of the inheritance, and that is what Elisha was asking for. He wanted to be Elijah's firstborn son, spiritually speaking. And perhaps that is why in verse 12 he calls Elijah, my father, my father. What Elisha wanted was his father's spirit. And by spirit, he did not mean Elijah's character or his temperament or his disposition, he meant the Holy Spirit. He was not interested in Elijah's staff or his parchments or his fame in Israel or even his cloak. No, when it came time to be written into Elijah's will, Elisha chose a spiritual inheritance. His great desire was to have the living power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life and ministry, and rightly so. As the firstborn son, it was Elisha's responsibility to take upon himself Elijah's mantle. He had already been designated as Elijah's successor, but he recognized that he would never become even half the prophet Elijah had been without a double portion of the Holy Spirit. R.D. Patterson puts it like this, the enormity of the loss of Elijah, that spirit-filled and empowered prophet, must have so gripped the humble Elisha that, claiming his position as firstborn, he asked for the firstborn's double portion, that is, for especially granted spiritual power, far beyond his own capabilities to meet the responsibilities of the awesome task that lay before him. This reminds us that the primary qualification for effective ministry in the church is the living presence of the Holy Spirit. 
This is one of the great lessons we will discover as we continue to read the book of Acts. When it came time to choose seven deacons in Jerusalem, the church chose men known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. When Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the Scripture says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And so if you want to do mercy or to resist persecution or to evangelize the lost, you must have a full portion of God's Holy Spirit. And Elisha teaches us to ask for a double portion of that same spirit we see at work in the lives of other believers. This is especially important, I suppose, for younger Christians. As you look around the church, take careful note of those men and women whose lives bear the unmistakable stamp of the Holy Spirit. Notice those who are bold in evangelism. Watch those who are merciful indeed. Listen to those who are fervent in prayer or to those who are powerful in teaching. Then ask God for a double portion of their spirit. Lord, give me your spirit of witness or mercy or prayer or proclamation. Not for my own sake, but for the praise of your glory and the work of your church. I myself do sometimes ask the Lord for a double portion of the spirit of my fathers in pastoral ministry. I think, for example, of Reverend William Still of Gilcomston South Church in Aberdeen, where I studied for a time. Just two weeks ago, failing health forced Mr. Still to step down from his preaching ministry after 52 years in the same pulpit. Like many other ministers, both in this country and in Scotland, I have prayed for a double portion of his spirit of prayer and preaching. Not you understand that I would presume to become even half the minister that he has been. Nevertheless, I make the bold request of an Elisha so that my ministry will receive power from the same Holy Spirit. And this example from the life of Elisha teaches all of God's church to make the same request for the Holy Spirit. Now one can measure the boldness of Elisha's request by the caution in Elijah's response. Verse 10, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours Otherwise not. Now, this is a puzzling verse. Why is it so hard to receive a double portion of the Spirit? Well, maybe it's difficult because being a prophet is difficult. What Elisha was really asking for was all of the persecution and all of the depression and all of the suffering that Elijah went through as a prophet. But more likely, Elijah simply meant that the Spirit of God was not his to give. In order for Elisha to get it, he had to witness a blazing departure. He had to witness that glorious, majestic, terrible 
presence of God himself. He had to witness Elijah's departure with the hosts of heaven, the divine armies of seraphim and cherubim with all their wind and fire. And although these things are sometimes visible, seeing them requires spiritual sight. This is how the commentator Gwillem Jones explains. This is not to be interpreted as a semi-magical sign which will lead to the automatic transfer of Elijah's spirit to Elisha. What Elijah implies is that if Elisha possesses the ability to penetrate into the heavenly world, his request will be granted. If he cannot demonstrate that he has that ability, his request will not be granted. Now, by God's grace, Elisha did have that spiritual perception. Apparently, none of the other seminary students saw it. Only Elisha, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Then Elisha saw him no more. He took hold of his clothes and tore them apart. You know, when Elisha saw Elijah taken up to heaven in this way, he witnessed something of the glory of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah's blazing departure is a picture of Christ's ascension. One of the reasons this story has always filled the church with such wonder is that apparently Elijah did not die. The phrase used in verse 11 to describe what happened is unique. The scripture says Elijah was taken up to heaven, apparently while he was still living in his physical body. So this is sometimes called Elijah's translation or even his rapture. He did not die. He was taken up to heaven as is. You may know that the same thing apparently happened to Enoch. The rest of the patriarchs, the scripture says, all died. But the Bible says, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. And this is what happened to Elijah. He was walking with God and talking with Elisha, and then he was no more because God took him away. One commentator notes that Elijah's translation invested him with the quality of eternal life, surpassing even Moses, the father of all prophets, who died and was buried. And this makes Elijah one of the types of the Old Testament, we call them. A type is simply an event from the Old Testament which symbolizes some aspect of the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In this case, Elijah's being taken up to heaven was a symbol or type of the ascension. The disciples of Jesus saw very much the same thing that Elisha saw when he saw a prophet removed bodily and taken up to heaven. Scripture says that as Jesus was talking with his disciples, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. So the translation of Elijah 
in an immortal body gives us a glimpse of the ascension of Jesus Christ. It shows us how Jesus passed through the Jordan River of death and was carried up to heaven to live forever in his resurrection body. The hope of Scripture is that the same thing will happen to the body of everyone who belongs to Jesus. When a Christian dies, we know that his or her soul goes immediately into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the bodies of the dead remain in their graves until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But then... The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That scripture comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and It assures us that if you have ever had a secret desire to go to heaven the way Elijah did, your desire will be satisfied. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will be caught up with the angels in the clouds to ascend to heaven to live with God forever. This is the great hope expressed in the words of that well-known spiritual which comes from 2 Kings chapter 2. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? A coming for to carry me home. A band of angels, a coming after me, a coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, a coming for to carry me home. Now it is my duty as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his gospel to warn you that not all chariots are sweet, especially chariots of fire. Not long after I arrived at 10th, I received a note from Margaret Barnhouse, the widow of our beloved former pastor. And Mrs. Barnhouse had read the following verses during her devotions and wondered if they had anything to do with Elijah. This is Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 and 16. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men. Those frightening verses do have something to do with Elijah. I use the very words to describe the coming of the Lord that we find in 2 Kings chapter 2. Fire, chariots, whirlwind. The fiery, windy coming of God with all his angels will be quite safe for all God's friends. But not at all safe, you understand, for his enemies. The only way to become a friend of God is through Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who came to this earth to live and to suffer and to die for the sins of his people. If you confess your sins and ask God to forgive you for Jesus' sake, then you become a friend of God. And God will welcome you 
as a friend on that day when he comes to gather all his friends to be with himself. Otherwise, when the Lord comes for you with all his angels and fiery chariots, it will be in terror. Now, as we have already suggested, not everyone saw Elijah taken up into heaven with chariots of fire. In verse 16, we find the company of the prophets behaving like typical seminary students. And I say that having once been a seminarian myself. You see, they have plenty of zeal. They have a heartfelt devotion for their old professor. But they keep asking the wrong questions. The prophets turn Elijah's ascension into, I suppose, the first biblical whodunit. What they want to know is what Elisha has done with the body. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. The prophets seem to think that Elijah is still living on earth, which is understandable because he did have a way of disappearing and then reappearing when he was least expected. Or perhaps the prophets simply wanted to find Elijah's body to give it a proper burial. But either way, Elisha's answer is no, do not send them, for he knew that there was no sense looking for a corpse. But they persisted until he was too ashamed to refuse, so he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, Didn't I tell you not to go? These verses can be paraphrased like this. They kept badgering him until he was too fed up to resist any longer. So he gave in and let them conduct their manhunt. But when they came back, he said, I told you so. Now, one suspects that Elisha could have been more gracious, but at least he knew better than to ask where Elijah was. Elisha knew that the big question, the real question, was where God was. That was the question Elijah asked when he was still grieving, back in verse 13, when he picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? You see, Elisha knows that he can do without Elijah. He knows that we are all expendable, that the Lord can always raise up someone else to do his work. And he always does. In the long centuries since Elijah was carried up to heaven with chariots of fire, God has never been without servants to do his will. For every Moses, there is a Joshua. For every David, there is a Solomon. And after every Paul, there is a Timothy. God's work carries on because it is just that. It is God's work. So Elisha can cope well enough without Elijah. What he cannot live without, and he knows it, is the God of Elijah. He cannot live without the God of providence. 
who fed Elijah by the brook, or the God of resurrection who raised the widow's son from the dead, or the God of power who put Baal to shame and sent rain upon the land, or the God of compassion who spoke to Elijah in that still, small voice when he wanted to kill himself, or the God of justice who punished Ahab and Jezebel for their greed. Elisha cannot live without the Spirit of God who was at work in everything that Elijah ever did. And so Elisha took Elijah's cloak and he stood on the bank of the river Jordan and he struck the water and he said, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And then Elisha got his big answer. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. I suppose this was Elisha's ordination. The mantle of spiritual leadership, once laid across his shoulders, is now his to wear. When the waters parted, even the seminary students could tell that he was Elijah's rightful spiritual heir. The company of the prophets from Jericho, verse 15, who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. But you see, the parting of the Jordan did much more than simply accredit Elisha. It accredited God. It proved that the God of Elijah was still, as he is now, the living God. Where is the God of Elijah? Here he is, still working, still living, still blessing. The God who was, still is, and is to come. The fact that the waters were separated reminds us that the God of Elijah is not just the God of Elijah, he is the God of Moses who led his children through the Red Sea on dry land, but also the God of Joshua, who led his children through the Jordan River on dry land. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, and he is our God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And is he not the God that you need this very day? Whatever the need, God is the God, and he always was the God, and he always will be the God. You need the kind of God who gives daily bread? Well, that's the kind of God Elijah had, and Elisha too, the same God who provides food and clothing and housing to this very day. Do you need a God who comforts? Well, God will comfort you the same way that he comforted Elijah and Elisha. Do you need a God who has power over death? That is the same God these prophets knew, the God who enabled them to raise the dead. Do you need a God who gives strength for ministry? Well, remember that Elijah, the scripture says, was a man just like us. 
And F.B. Meyer reminds us never to forget that Elijah himself did what he did, not by inherent qualities, but because through faith he had received such copious bestowments of the Spirit of God. And what he did, we may do again. The weakest and humblest may do, if only we are prepared to wait and watch and pray until our Pentecost breaks upon us with or without its sound of rushing wind and its tongues of flaming fire. When Donald Gray Barnhouse died in 1960, after some 33 years of ministry in this pulpit, the loss was felt deeply, not only in this church, but throughout the evangelical world. Not long afterwards, Eternity Magazine published a memorial issue in Dr. Barnhouse's honor. When his readers opened the magazine, they were greeted with these words in large print, Lord, make me an Elisha. That rousing battle cry was followed by these words, The Lord's warrior has departed and his mantle has been dropped at our feet. We who sat at the feet of Donald Gray Barnhouse and met Christ with every word he spoke, owe a debt of love, a debt of thanksgiving which can never be totally repaid. His courage in speaking the truth, his passion for reconciling Christ's people to each other, his flaming heart consumed in service, his unceasing, thus saith the Lord. These compel us to take up the mantle boldly and say, Lord, make me an Elisha, make me strong and faithful. Continue in me the work which is begun in this thy servant. And this is a prayer for every one of us who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make me an Elisha. Give me a portion, a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. We give you praise that your saving grace never changes and that the work of your Spirit for ministry never changes. And we ask now for your Spirit to rest upon us. Give us a full portion of the Holy Spirit for your work. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for the sake of your glory. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org.
Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.